Did you know The Sleepy Bookshelf has a sibling podcast with all original stories and meditations? It's called Get Sleepy, and I'm sure you'll love it. I even narrate some of the stories. Just search for Get Sleepy in your preferred podcast player. Thank you, and sweet dreams. Good evening. And welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's always a pleasure to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning to the time machine. But before we do that, take a moment here to breathe and relax. Imagine you are sat in a large, cushioned armchair in a candle-lit room by a warm fireplace. Close your eyes and listen to the sound of the crackling wood in the hearth. Feel the heat from the fire and roll your shoulders back, sinking into your chair. Take a deep breath in and smell the lovely, smoky fragrance around you. Allow yourself to give in to relaxation. Keep breathing deeply and evenly as I recap our last episode. Last time you were here, we met the time traveler who was explaining the plausibility of a fourth dimension, time. Philby, another gentleman in the room, was incredulous, where the psychologist and the medical man were slightly more open to the idea. The young man in the back was curious and excited and the mayor seemed to have difficulty even grasping the concept. To prove his point, the time traveller disappeared to his laboratory and came back with a small, tabletop-sized device. Intricate in design, with ivory and some sort of crystal, and two levers Placing it where everyone could see, he took the psychologist's hand and had him turn the first lever. In a flash and a gust of wind, the machine disappeared. He explained it had travelled to another point in time, though whether past or future he could not yet tell. He then invited everyone to come to his laboratory to see a full-sized version of this same machine which he intended to travel on as the next stage of his experiment. It all seemed too unbelievable to even be talked about, and for the next week, nobody did, though they surely pondered about it to themselves. 
Thursday came around again, and we arrived at the time traveler's house. The psychologist and the medical man were already there, along with three other fellows we haven't met yet. The editor of the daily paper, a journalist, and a silent man. The time traveler was not yet present, but when he did arrive, he looked terribly unwell and bedraggled. And that is where we pick our story back up, in the smoking room, with the time traveler about to tell us about his amazing adventure. So just close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of the time machine. Chapter 4 Time Travelling I told some of you last Thursday the principles of the time machine and showed you the actual thing itself, incomplete in the workshop. The time traveller said, beginning his story. There it is now, a little travel-worn, truly, when one of the ivory bars is cracked, and a brass rail bent. The rest of it's sound enough. Expected to finish it on Friday. But on Friday, when putting together was nearly done, found that one of the nickel bars exactly one inch too short and this I had to get remade so that the thing was not complete until this morning it was ten o'clock today that the first of all time machines began its career I gave it a last tap tried all the screws again and put one more drop of oil on the quartz rod sat myself in the saddle. I suppose a person about to jump into the sea from a great height feels much the same wonder at what will come next as I felt then. I took the starting lever in one hand and the stopping one in the other, pressed the first, and almost immediately the second I seemed to reel felt a nightmare sensation of falling, and looking round, I saw the laboratory exactly as before. Had anything happened? For a moment I suspected that my intellect had tricked me. Then I noted the clock. A moment before, as it seemed, it had stood at a minute or so past ten, Now it was nearly half past three. I drew a breath, set my teeth, gripped the starting lever with both hands, and went off with a thud. The laboratory got hazy and went dark. Mrs. Watchett came in and walked, apparently without seeing me, towards the garden door. I suppose it took her a minute or so to traverse the place. To me, she seemed to shoot across the room like a rocket. 
I pressed the lever over to its extreme position. The night came like the turning out of a lamp, and in another moment came tomorrow. The laboratory grew faint and hazy, then fainter and ever fainter. Tomorrow night came back, then day again, night again, day again, faster and faster still. An eddying murmur filled my ears, and a strange, dumb confusedness descended on my mind. I'm afraid I cannot convey the peculiar sensations of time traveling. They are excessively unpleasant. There is a feeling exactly like that one has upon a switchback, of a helpless, headlong motion. I felt the same horrible anticipation, too, of an imminent smash. As I put on pace, night followed day like the flapping of a black wing. The dim suggestion of the laboratory seemed presently to fall away from me, and I saw the sun hopping swiftly across the sky, leaping every minute and every minute marking a day. I supposed the laboratory had been destroyed, and I had come into the open air. I had a dim impression of scaffolding, but I was already going too fast to be conscious of any moving things. The slowest snail that ever crawled dashed by too fast for me. The twinkling succession of darkness and light Successively disturbing to the eye. Then, in the intermittent darkness, I saw the moon spinning swiftly through her quarters from new to full, and had a faint glimpse of the circling stars. Presently, as I went on, still gaining velocity, the palpitation of night and day merged into one continuous grayness. The sky took on a wonderful deepness of blue, a splendid luminous color like that of early twilight. The jerking sun became a streak of fire, a brilliant arch in space. The moon, a fainter fluctuating hand, and I could see nothing of the stars save now and then a brighter circle flickering in the blue. The landscape was misty and vague. I was still on the hillside upon which this house now stands, and the shoulder rose above me, grey and dim. I saw trees growing and changing like puffs of vapour, now brown, now green. They grew, spread, shivered, and passed away. I saw huge buildings rise up, faint and fair, and pass like dreams. The whole surface of the earth seemed changed, melting and flowing under my eyes. The little hands upon the dials that registered my speed raced round faster and faster. Presently, I noted that the sun belt swayed up and down, 
from solstice to solstice in a minute or less, and that consequently my pace was over a year a minute, a minute to minute, while the snow flashed across the world and vanished, and was followed by the bright, brief green of spring. The unpleasant sensations at the start were less poignant now. They merged at last into a kind of hysterical exhilaration. I remarked indeed a clumsy swaying of the machine for which I was unable to account, but my mind was too confused to attend to it. So with a kind of madness growing upon me, I flung myself into futurity. At first, I scarce thought of stopping, scarce thought of anything but these new sensations. But presently, a fresh series of impressions grew up in my mind. A certain curiosity, and therewith a certain dread, until at last they took complete possession of me. What strange developments of humanity. What wonderful advances upon our rudimentary civilization, I thought, might not appear when I come to look merely into the dim, elusive world that raced and fluctuated before my eyes. I saw a great and splendid architecture rising about me, more massive than any buildings of our own time, and yet, as it seemed, built of glimmer and mist. I saw a richer green flow up the hillside and remain there without any wintry intermission. Even through the veil of my confusion, the earth seemed very fair, and so my mind came round to the busyness of stopping. The peculiar risk lay in the possibility of my finding some substance in the space which I or the machine occupied. So long as I travelled at a higher velocity through time, this scarcely mattered. I was, so to speak, attenuated. I was slipping, like a vapour, through the intercises of intervening substances. But to come to a stop, involved the jamming of myself, molecule by molecule, into whatever lay in my way, meant bringing my atoms into such intimate contact with those of the obstacle to profound chemical reaction, possibly a far-reaching explosion would result, and blow myself and my apparatus out of all possible dimensions into the unknown. This possibility had occurred to me again and again while I was making the machine. Then I had cheerfully accepted it as an unavoidable risk, one of the risks a man has got to take. Now the risk was inevitable. I no longer saw it in the same cheerful light. The fact is that insensibly, absolute strangeness of everything, the sickly jarring and swaying of the machine above all, the feeling of prolonged falling had absolutely upset my nerves. 
I told myself that I could never stop, and with a gust of petulance, I resolved to stop forthwith. Like an impatient fool, I lunged over the lever, and incontinently the thing went reeling over, and I was flung headlong through the air. There was the sound of a clap of thunder in my ears. I may have been stunned for a moment. A pitiless hail was hissing round me. I was sitting on soft turf in front of the overset machine. Everything still seemed grey. Presently I remarked that the confusion in my ears was gone. I looked round me. I was on what seems to be a little lawn in a garden, surrounded by rhododendron bushes. I noticed that their mauve and purple blossoms were dropping in a shower under the beating of hailstones. The rebounding, dancing hail hung in a little cloud over the machine and drove along the ground like smoke. In a moment, I was wet to the skin. Fine hospitality, said I, to a man who has traveled innumerable years to see you. Presently, I thought what a fool I was to get wet. I stood up and looked around me. Colossal figure, carved apparently in some white stone, loomed indistinctly beyond the rhododendrons through the hazy downpour, but all else of the world was invisible. My sensations would be hard to describe. As the columns of hail grew thinner, I saw the white figure more distinctly. It was very large, for a silver birch tree touched its shoulder. It was of white marble in the shape of something like a winged sphinx. The wings, instead of being carried vertically at the side, were spread so that it seemed to hover. The pedestal, it appeared to me, was of bronze, and was thick with the bluish-green patina of the age. It chanced that the face was towards me. The sightless eyes seemed to watch me. There was the faint shadow of a smile on the lips. It was greatly weather-worn, and that imparted an unpleasant suggestion of disease. I stood, looking at it for a little space. Half a minute, perhaps, or half an hour, seemed to advance and to recede as the hail drove before it, denser or thinner. At last, I tore my eyes from it for a moment and saw that the hail curtain had worn threadbare and that the sky was lightening with the promise of sun. I looked up again at the crouching white shape and the full turmerity of my voyage came suddenly upon me. What might appear when that hazy curtain was altogether withdrawn? What might not have happened to men? What if cruelty had grown into a common passion? What if in this interval the race had lost its manliness 
and had developed into something inhuman, unsympathetic, and overwhelmingly powerful. I might seem some old-world animal, only the more dreadful and disgusting for our common likeness, a foul creature to be slain. Already I saw other vast shapes, huge buildings with intricate parapets and tall columns, the wooded hillside dimly creeping upon me through the lessening storm. I was seized with a panic fear. I turned frantically to the time machine and strove hard to readjust it. As I did so, the shafts of the sun smote through the thunderstorm. The grey downpour was swept aside and vanished like the trailing garments of a ghost. Above me in the intense blue of the summer sky, some faint brown shreds of cloud whirled into nothingness. The great buildings about me stood out, clear and distinct, shining with the wet of the thunderstorm and picked out in white by the unmelted hailstones piled along their courses. I felt naked in a strange world. I felt as perhaps a bird may feel in the clear air, knowing the hawk wings above and will swoop. My fear grew to frenzy. I took a breathing space, set my teeth, and again grappled fiercely, wrist and knee with the machine. It gave under my desperate onset and turned over. I struck my chin. One hand on the saddle, the other on the lever, I stood panting, heavily in altitude to mount again. But with this recovery of a prompt retreat, my courage recovered. I looked more curiously and less fearfully at the world of this remote future. In a circular opening, high upon the wall of the nearer house, I saw a group of figures clad in rich, soft robes. They had seen me, and their faces were directed towards me. Then I heard voices approaching me, coming through the bushes by the white sphinx with the heads and shoulders of men running. One of these emerged in a pathway leading straight to the little lawn upon which I stood with my machine. He was a slight creature, perhaps four feet high, clad in a purple tunic, girdled at the waist with a leather belt. Sandals or buskins, could not clearly distinguish which, were on his feet. His legs were bare to the knees, and his head was bare. Noticing that, I noticed for the first time how warm the air was. He struck me as being a very beautiful and graceful creature, but indescribably frail. His flushed face reminded me of the more beautiful kind of consumptive, that hectic beauty of which we used to hear so much. 
the sight of him, I suddenly regained confidence, took my hands from the machine. Chapter 5 In the Golden Age In another moment, we were standing face to face, I and this fragile thing out of futurity came straight up to me and laughed into my eyes. The absence from his bearing of any sign of fear struck me at once. Then he turned to two others who were following him and spoke to them in a strange, very sweet and liquid tongue. There were others coming, and presently a little group of perhaps eight or ten of these exquisite creatures were about me. One of them addressed me. It came into my head, oddly enough, but my voice was too harsh and deep for them. So I shook my head, and pointing to my ears, shook it again, and came a step forward, hesitated, and then touched my hand. Then I felt another soft little tentacles upon my back and shoulders. They wanted to make sure I was real. There was nothing in this at all alarming. Indeed, there was something in these pretty little people that inspired confidence, graceful gentleness, certain childlike ease. Besides, they looked so frail that I could fancy myself flinging the whole dozen of them about like ninepins. But I made a sudden motion to warn them when I saw their little pink hands feeling the time machine. Happily then, when it was not too late, I thought of a danger I had hitherto forgotten, and reaching over the bars of the machine, I unscrewed the little levers that would set it in motion and put these in my pocket. Then I turned again to see what I could do in the way of communication. And then, looking more nearly into their features, I saw some further peculiarities in their Dresden China type of prettiness. Their hair, which was uniformly curly, came to a sharp end at the neck and cheek. There was not the faintest suggestion of it on the face, and their ears were singularly minute. The mouths were small, with bright red, rather thin lips, and the chins ran to a point. The eyes were large and mild, and this may seem egotism on my part, I fancied even that there was a certain lack of the interest I might have expected in them. As they made no effort to communicate with me, but simply stood round me, smiling, speaking in soft, cooing notes to each other, I began the conversation. I pointed to the time machine, and then to myself, then hesitating for a moment how to express time, I pointed to the sun. At once a 
quaintly pretty little figure in checkered purple and white followed my gesture, then astonished me by imitating the sound of thunder. For a moment I was staggered, though the import of this gesture was plain enough. The question had come to my mind abruptly. Were these creatures fools? You may hardly understand how it took me. You see, I had always anticipated that the people of the year 802,000-odd would be incredibly in front of us in knowledge, art, everything. Then one of them suddenly asked me a question that showed him to be on the intellectual level of one of our five-year-old children. Asked me, in fact, if I had come from the sun in a thunderstorm. I let loose the judgment I had suspended upon their clothes, their frail, light limbs and fragile features. A flow of disappointment rushed across my mind. For a moment, I felt that I had built the time machine in vain. I nodded, pointed to the sun, and gave them such a vivid rendering of a thunderclap as startled them. They all withdrew a pace or so and bowed. Then came one, laughing towards me, carrying a chain of beautiful flowers, altogether new to me, and put it about my neck. The idea was received with melodious applause, and presently they were all running to and fro for flowers, and laughingly flinging them upon me till I was almost smothered with blossom. You who have never seen the light can scarcely imagine what delicate and wonderful flowers countless years of culture had created. Then someone suggested that their playthings should be exhibited in the nearest building, and so I was led past the sphinx of white marble, which had seemed to watch me all the while with a smile at my astonishment, towards a vast, grey edifice of fretted stone. As I went with them, a memory of my confident anticipations a profoundly grave and intellectual posterity came irresistible merriment to my mind. The building had a huge entry and was altogether of colossal dimensions. I was naturally most occupied with the growing crowd of little people and with the big, open portals that yawned before me, shadowy, mysterious. My general impression of the world I saw over their heads was a tangled waste of beautiful bushes and flowers, a long, neglected, and yet weedless garden. I saw a number of tall spikes of strange white flowers, measuring a foot, perhaps, across the spread of the waxen petals They grew scattered, as if wild, among the variegated shrubs. But as I say, I did not examine them closely at this time. 
The time machine was left deserted on the turf among the rhododendrons. The arch of the doorway was richly carved, but naturally I did not observe the carving very narrowly, though I fancied I saw suggestions of old Phoenician decorations as I passed through, and it struck me that they were very badly broken and weather-worn. Several more brightly clad people met me in the doorway, and so we entered. I dressed in dingy 19th century garments, looking grotesque enough, garlanded with flowers, and surrounded by an eddying mass of bright, soft-colored robes and shining white limbs in a melodious whirl of laughter and laughing speech. A big doorway opened in a proportionately great hall hung with brown. The roof was in shadow, and the windows, partially glazed with colored glass and partially unglazed, admitted a tempered light. The floor was made up of huge blocks of some very hard white metal, not plates nor slabs, blocks, and it was so much worn as I judged by the going to and fro of past generations is to be deeply channeled along the more frequented ways. Transverse to the length were innumerable tables made of slabs of polished stone, raised perhaps a foot from the floor, and upon these were heaps of fruits, some I recognized as a kind of hypertrophied raspberry and orange, but for the most part, they were strange. Between the tables was scattered a great number of cushions. Upon these, my conductors seated themselves, signing for me to do likewise. With a pretty absence of ceremony, they began to eat the fruit with their hands, flinging peel and stalks and so forth into the round openings in the sides of the tables. I was not loath to follow their example, for I felt thirsty and hungry. As I did so, I surveyed the hall at my leisure. And perhaps the thing that struck me the most was its dilapidated look. The stained glass windows, which displayed only a geometrical pattern, were broken in many places, and the curtains that hung across the lower end were thick with dust. But it caught my eye. The corner of the marble table near me was fractured. Nevertheless, the general effect was extremely rich and picturesque. There were perhaps a couple of hundred people dining in the hall, and most of them seated as near to me as they could come, watching me with interest, their little eyes shining over the fruit they were eating. All were clad in the same soft and yet strong silky material. Fruit, by the by, was all their diet. 
the people of the remote future were strict vegetarians. And while I was with them, in spite of some carnal cravings, I had to be frugivorous also. Indeed, I found afterwards that horses, cattle, sheep, dogs, had followed the ichthyosaurus into extinction. But the fruits were very delightful. One in particular that seemed to be in season all the time I was there. A flowery thing in three-sided husk. It's especially good, and I made it my staple. At first I was puzzled by all these strange fruits, and by the strange flowers I saw. But later I began to perceive their import. However, I am telling you of my fruit dinner in the distant future now. So soon as my appetite was a little checked, I determined to make a resolute attempt to learn the speech of these new men of mine. Clearly, that was the next thing to do. The fruit seemed a convenient thing to begin upon, and holding one of these up, I began a series of interrogative sounds and gestures. I had some considerable difficulty in conveying my meaning. But my first efforts met with a stare of surprise or inextinguishable laughter. But presently, a fair-haired little creature seemed to grasp my intention and repeated a name. They had to chatter and explain the business at great length to each other, and my first attempts to make the exquisite little sounds of their language caused an immense amount of genuine, if uncivil, amusement. However, I felt like a schoolmaster amidst children, and persisted, and presently, I had a score of noun substantives, at least at my command. And then I got to demonstrative pronouns and even the verb to eat. But it was slow work, and the little people soon tired and wanted to get away from my interrogations. So I determined, rather of necessity, to let them give their lessons in little doses when they felt inclined. And very little doses I found they were before long for I never met people more indolent or more easily fatigued. Chapter 6 The Sunset of Mankind A strange thing I soon discovered about my little hosts, and that was their lack of interest. They would come to me with eager cries of astonishment, like children. But like children, they would soon stop examining me and wander away after some other toy. The dinner and my conversational beginnings ended, I noted for the first time that almost all those who had surrounded me at first were gone. It is odd, too, how speedily I came to disregard these little people. I went out through the portal into the sunlit world again as soon as my hunger was satisfied, 
I was continually meeting more of these men of the future, who would follow me a little distance, chatter, and laugh about me, and having smiled and gesticulated in a friendly way, leave me again to my own devices. The calm of evening was upon the world as I emerged from the great hall, and the scene was lit by the warm glow of the setting sun. At first, things were very confusing. Everything was so entirely different from the world I had known, even the flowers. The big building I had left was situated on the slope of a broad river valley, but the Thames had shifted, perhaps, a mile from its present location. I resolved to mount to the summit of a crest, perhaps a mile and a half away, from which I could get a wider view of this, our planet, in the year 802,701 AD. For that, I should explain, was the date the little dials of my machine recorded. As I walked, I was watching for every impression that could possibly help to explain the condition of ruinous splendor in which I found the world. For ruinous it was. A little way up the hill, for instance, was a great heap of granite bound together by masses of aluminium, a vast labyrinth of precipitous walls and crumbled heaps, amidst which were thick heaps of very beautiful pagoda-like plants, nettles possibly, but wonderfully tinted with brown about the leaves and incapable of stinging was evidently the derelict remains of some vast structure, to what end built I could not determine. It was here that I was destined, at a later date, to have a very strange experience, the first intimation of a still stranger discovery, but of that I will speak in its proper place. Looking round, with a sudden thought from a terrace on which I rested for a while, I realized that there were no small houses to be seen. Apparently, a single house, and possibly even the household, had vanished. Here and there among the greenery were palace-like buildings. The house and the cottage, which formed such characteristic features of our own English landscape had disappeared. I looked at the half-dozen little figures that were following me. Then in a flash, I perceived that all had the same form of costume, the same soft, hairless visage, and the same girlish rotundity of limb. It may seem strange, perhaps, I had not noticed this before. Everything was so strange. Now I saw the fact plainly enough. In costume, and in all the details of texture and bearing, these people of the future were alike 
and the children seemed to my eyes to be but the miniatures of their parents. I judged then that the children of that time were extremely precocious, physically at least, and I found afterwards abundant verification of my opinion. Seeing the ease and security in which these people were living, I felt that this was, after all, what one would expect. While I was musing upon these things, my attention was attracted by a pretty little structure, like a well under a cupola. I thought in a transitory way of the oddness of wells still existing, and then resumed the thread of my speculation. There were no large buildings towards the top of the hill, and as my walking powers were evidently miraculous, I was presently left alone for the first time. With a strange sense of freedom and adventure, I pushed on up to the crest. There I found a seat of some yellow metal that I did not recognize, corroded in places, kind of pinkish rust, and half smothered in soft moss. The armrests, cast and filed into the resemblance of griffin's heads. I sat down on it, and I surveyed the broad view of our old world under the sunset of that long day. It was as sweet and fair a view as I have ever seen. The sun had already gone below the horizon, and the west was flaming gold, touched with some horizontal bars of purple and crimson. Below was the valley of the Thames, in which the river lay like a band of burnished steel. I have already spoken of the great palaces dotted about among the variegated greenery, some in ruins and some still occupied. Here and there rose a white or silvery figure in the waste garden of the earth. Here and there came the sharp, vertical line of some cupola or obelisk. There were no hedges, no signs of proprietary rights, no evidences of agriculture. The whole earth had become a garden. So watching, I began to put my interpretation upon the things I had seen, and as it shaped itself to me that evening, my interpretation was something in this way. Afterwards, I found I had got only a half-truth, or only a glimpse of one facet of the truth. It seemed to me that I had happened upon humanity upon the wane, The ruddy sunset set me thinking of the sunset of mankind. For the first time, I began to realize an odd consequence of the social effort in which we are at present engaged. And yet, come to think, it is a logical consequence enough. Strength is the outcome of need. Security sets a premium on feebleness. 
the work of ameliorating the conditions of life, the process that makes life more and more secure, had gone steadily on to a climax. One triumph of a united humanity over nature had followed another. Things that are now mere dreams had become projects deliberately put in hand and carried forward, and the harvest was what I saw. After all, the sanitation and the agriculture of today are still in the rudimentary stage. The science of our time has attacked but a little department of the field of human disease. But even so, it spreads its operations very steadily and persistently. Our agriculture and horticulture destroy a weed just here and there and cultivate perhaps a score or so of wholesome plants, leaving the greater number to fight out a balance as they can. We improve our favorite plants and animals, and how few they are, gradually, by selective breeding. Now a new and better peach, now a seedless grape, now a sweeter and larger flower, now a more convenient breed of cattle. We improve them gradually because our ideals are vague and tentative, and our knowledge is very limited. Because nature, too, is shy and slow in our clumsy hands. Someday all this will be better organized, and still better. That is the drift of the current in spite of the eddies. The whole world will be intelligent, educated, and cooperating. Things will move faster and faster towards the subjugation of nature. In the end, wisely and carefully, we shall readjust the balance of animal and vegetable life to suit our human needs. This adjustment, I say, must have been done, and done well. Done indeed for all time. In the space of time across which my machine had leapt, the air was free from gnats, the earth from weeds or fungi. Everywhere were fruits and sweet and delightful flowers. Brilliant butterflies flew here and there. The ideal of preventative medicine was attained. Diseases had been stamped out. I saw no evidence of any contagious diseases during all my stay. But I shall have to tell you later that even the process of putrefaction and decay had been profoundly affected by these changes. Social triumphs, too, had been affected. I saw mankind housed in splendid shelters, gloriously clothed, and as yet I had found them engaged in no toil. There were no signs of struggle, neither social nor economical struggle. The shop, the advertisement, traffic, all that commerce which constitutes the body of our world was gone. It was natural on that golden evening that I should jump at the idea 
of a social paradise. But with this change in condition comes inevitably adaptations to the change. What, unless biological science is a mass of errors, is the cause of human intelligence and vigor? Hardship and freedom, conditions that put a premium upon the loyal alliance of capable people, upon self-restraint, patience, and decision, and the institution of the family, and the emotions that arise therein, the fierce jealousy, the tenderness of the offspring, parental self-devotion, all found their justification and support in the imminent dangers of the young. Now where are these imminent dangers? There is a sentiment arising, and it will grow against passion of all sorts, unnecessary things now, and things that make us uncomfortable, discords in a refined and pleasant life. I thought of the physical slightness of the people, their lack of intelligence, those big, abundant ruins that strengthened my belief in a perfect conquest of nature, for after the battle comes quiet. Humanity had been strong, energetic, and intelligent, and had used all its abundant vitality to alter the conditions under which it lived. And now came the reaction of the altered conditions. Under the new conditions of perfect comfort and security, that restless energy, that with us is strength, would become weakness. Even in our own time, certain tendencies and desires, once necessary to survival, are a constant source of failure. Physical courage and the love of battle, for instance, are no great help, may even be hindrance to a man. And in a state of physical balance and security, power, intellectual as well as physical, would be out of place. For countless years, I judged there had been no danger of war or solitary violence, no danger from wild beasts, no wasting disease to require strength of constitution, no need of toil. For such a life, what we should call the weak are as well equipped as the strong, and indeed no longer weak. Better equipped indeed they are, for the strong would be fretted by an energy for which there was no outlet. No doubt the exquisite beauty of the buildings I saw was the outcome of the last surgings of the now purposeless energy of mankind before it settled down into perfect harmony with the conditions under which it lived. The flourish of that triumph which began the last great peace. This has ever been the fate of energy and security. It takes to art and to eroticism, and then come languor and decay. Even this artistic impetus would at last die away, 
had almost died in the time I saw. To adorn themselves with flowers, to dance, to sing in the sunlight. So much was left of the artistic spirit and no more. Even that would fade in the end into a contented inactivity. We are kept keen on the grindstone of pain and necessity, but it seems to me that here was that hateful grindstone, broken at last. As I stood there in the gathering dark, I thought that in this simple explanation I had mastered the problem of the world, mastered the whole secret of these delicious people possibly the checks they had devised for the increase of population had succeeded too well and their numbers had rather diminished than kept stationary. That would account for the abandoned ruins. Very simple was my explanation, implausible enough, as most wrong theories are. <laughs> 